How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, is the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. For Taisho today, um, we'll be looking uh, at and beyond sickness and wellness. The title of the talk is Beyond Wellness. Uh, it's the 22nd of February, 2022. Uh, last Friday, um, I went to see a neurologist um, who confirmed the diagnosis that he made tentatively six months ago um, that um, I have Parkinson's disease. For those of you who, who um, are unfamiliar with it, Parkinson's disease is a movement disorder. Um, it's, it's caused in the brain, it's a degenerative condition of the brain, and um, it's a, making, a missing brain chemical, dopamine, that affects a wide range of our functions and um, the brain produces less and less of this dopamine as, the, uh, as it progresses. There's no 
cure, and there's not even a test for Parkinson's. It's just something that's done by a neurologist examining you. Um, but there are treatments uh, to relieve the symptoms as they get more extreme as you go on with the disease. And the little booklet that they give you at the end of the appointment said something reassuring. It said, with treatment, only a, a mind has, has only a minor effect on lifespan, uh, but it is dis disabling in the long run. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's not an easy diagnosis to receive in that respect. Uh, the cause of it is not known. There's a lot of research goes into it. Um, but one some kind of genetic predisposition is, is uh, probably a factor. And it's quite common. It affects 1% of people over 60. Much, much lower, about 1 in 1,000 in the general population. But as we age, we become more susceptible to it. Um, another thing I discovered was that it's very variable in its and how it manifests in different people, and especially in the speed of progression. Um, some, in some people, it progresses quickly, and others more slowly. Um, I haven't had it long enough to have a sense yet of, of how it's unfolding, really, or at least I should say, probably I haven't been aware of having it because. It's uh, one of the things about Parkinson's is that it comes on very, very gradually. So people close to you of, often don't recognize the change because it is so gradual. Some of the things that I've been aware of happening over the past year, year or so, which add up to this um, diagnosis are I find I have a, a tremor in my hands and legs sometimes when I'm at rest, when I'm sitting in a chair. Um, I have um, a tendency to stoop and lose my balance, which is common in Parkinson's. Um, I found my hands have got more clumsy and um, less able to do fine motor things. Um, probably the biggest one that I've noticed, the most um, annoying, is that my handwriting has deteriorated considerably. So now when I'm reading my notes, they're so um, badly written that sometimes I can't read the words that I've written down. So um, all this and a bunch of other things, stiffness um, and joints and slowness getting up. In Sashin, I notice it most in the fact that it takes me longer to get up from the, the mat uh, to, to do kinhing and moving more slowly. Um, bradykinesia is, is uh, one of the symptoms. Uh, this is one that you don't usually notice yourself, but um, others do, that your face becomes less expressive and more mask-like. Um, uh, it just gives you a sense uh, there, are, there are other things too. Anxiety is a symptom, sometimes depression. Um, but all of these um, stack up quite strongly to suggest Parkinson's. Um, ha having seen the neurologist six months ago, um, he wasn't quite sure, so I had a bit of wiggle room. But now um, he's pretty definite about it. And so I have a really 
um, a need really just to face up to it and and accept this um, that this, this this these changes are happening in this body um, and and I'm sure that it'll be something I have to do not once but again and again because um, it's a degenerative disease and there'll be lots of things to accept along the way uh, gradually losing mobility and independence of course is towards the end of the um, the arc of the disease. One of the the things that struck me in, in starting to think and feel about this was the fact that um, I've already seen this process twice in two people who are very important to me in my life. Uh, the first one was Roshi Philip Kaplow, my grandfather in the Dharma, that is my teacher's teacher, who was uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's around, I think around 1990. And um, he, w he became very exhausted while he was giving a session in Rochester. Um, I w it was one of the early sessions I attended there and I was the Han player just as playing exactly what I played just now before we started Taisho. And um, Rishi Kaplow was so exhausted that he would lie down for a few minutes in the room outside the, the Zendo while I played the Han to, to catch a little rest before he got up again to go in and give Taisho. That was his last, this is the last uh, seven-day session that he taught. Luckily for, for me, fatigue isn't one of the things that I've experienced, at least not yet. Um, but Roshi Kaplow um, lived with the disease for over a decade. Um, he continued to teach for some years in Florida where he'd gone into semi-retirement. And then around the mid-90s, I think, he moved back to Rochester to stay at the center so that he could be supported and cared for by the, the big sangha there, this big staff and, and um, community there, when it became harder to do this at a distance, um, sending people down to Florida, which was a very small group, a small Zen group there, just really um, uh, probably a dozen, a dozen members or, or so. But because he shifted back to, to Rochester, Richard and I were um, occasionally on the, on, had the, the um, task of being caregivers w with him. So preparing his supper, helping him with personal cares, um, helping him go down, lie down for rest or, or go to bed at night and, and all that went with that. And so I got to see firsthand that it's not an easy thing to have Parkinson's. It, um, uh, it eventually involves being very dependent on, on care, caregivers for much of the things that we take for granted. One of the things that he, he had to do is um, over multiple years was kind of tutor an ever-changing team of, of caregivers. He was, a, he was a Zen teacher and so he was quite particular about how things were done. <laughs> and, and he had to 
um, pass on all this 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 uh, information to caregiver after caregiver. But he did so with a lot of humour, and he bore his, the indignities of his illness with a lot of dignity. The other person that I witnessed with Parkinson's was was um, Philip Wrightson, my father. Um, which he got diagnosed about two years before his death from a stroke. And so I, it was something I saw in him for a much shorter period of time. Um, and he was not as physically disabled as as physically disabled, but he was confused and I think disoriented by by the illness. I was thinking that perhaps um, if I'd known I was going to follow in their footsteps, I might have paid more attention to how they were coping. Of course, you can't really ever predict how, how something is going to unfold and or, or what sort of feelings one will have, uh, what reactions. Um, when I look at it, the last three, three or four days, which, which is what is unraveled, un, unfolded since, since the diagnosis, all kinds of emotions have gone through my, my heart. Um, of course, living with a degenerative disease is not something you plan for. You don't fantasize about that in terms of how your um, retirement years will go. Um, and I'm sure it's going to take a while for it really to, to fully sink in. Um, and that my response is going to evolve over time. But it's, it's been initially quite mixed and varied. Of course, apprehension at how um, this might unfold, and and deep fears coming up. The deep questions that we have, uh, the one that that has perhaps been most most powerful is, will will people still love me if I'm no longer useful to them? Will I be a burden to people? Lots of lots of questions around being institutionalized and and losing control of of my life. Spent a fair amount of time in in rest homes with my mother, and they can be sad places, lonely places. There can also be a lot of compassion in them too. There is that other side. But pretty quickly, it's, it's, you can see that such thoughts about the future are, are just that, thoughts. They're a, re a reaction to an idea about a future that hasn't come yet. Um, and really, why add pain on top of uh, 
the, the pain of the, of the illness itself. Because that reaction, that, that um, dread or um, imagining the future, is avoidable. When it comes, the, 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 the future will be in the present and it will be what it is. But um, no need to add to it. It really doesn't help. Some of you may have heard this story, the, the, of, it's actually from a sutta, a Pali sutta, of the second arrow, where the Buddha is asked by somebody, well, what's, what's, since both uh, people who are disciplined in their practice and people who aren't suffer pain and joy and, and so forth, what's the difference between the two? And the Buddha basically says, well, a person who is who is who hasn't trained their mind, who is undisciplined, when they feel a pain or discomfort, then they they react with a lot of aversion, a lot of even panic to that pain. Whereas somebody who has trained their mind, they'll still feel the pain, but they won't add anything on top of the pain. They'll just be the pain. And he said it's like um, the undisciplined person's reaction is like. Uh, if somebody got shot by an arrow, and that was that was the pain of the illness or whatever, and then a second arrow was shot, which which went into the into the into the wound of the first arrow, but that second arrow was made up from uh, the the painful reactions that we we have to things. We can we can avoid that second arrow. Another teaching that occurred to me was from Master Shen Yun, who, who said about painful things in our lives. Face it, accept it, deal with it, let it go. Or another version of this that comes from um, Dr. Claire Weeks. Face, accept, float, let time pass. I think this is a very, this, this floating is, can be very helpful um, instruction. And let's read a little bit from her book. Now, I, th I have given, I've read from this before in Taisho, and I, I um, think she's Australian. Um, it's quite old, this book. I think it first came out in the 60s, but it's a, cl it's a real classic. It's called uh, Self-Help for Your Nerves. Learn to relax and enjoy life again by overcoming stress and fear. And the, the language in it now is a little um, old-fashioned, but the, the guidance that it gives is very, very helpful. And um, she's, she's talking here about um, uh, working with anxiety and... and um, Panic, how to how to work with them, how to literally cure oneself of them. And this passage is headed up once more: true acceptance. Make sure that you appreciate the difference between truly accepting and only thinking you are accepting. If you can let your symptoms 
happen. Your stomach churn, your hands sweat, your heart thump quickly, and your head ache, without paying too much attention to them, then you are truly accepting. It does not matter so much if at first you cannot do this calmly. It may be impossible to be calm at this stage. All I ask for true acceptance is that you are prepared to live and work with your symptoms without paying them too much respect. So to learn to, to coexist with um, our afflictions. She talks a little bit more about floating um, soon after this. To float is just as important as to accept, and it works similar magic. I would, could say, let float and not fight be your slogan, because it amounts to that. Let me illustrate more clearly the meaning of float in this regard. A patient had become so afraid of meeting people that she had not entered a shop for months. When asked to make a sport purchase, she said, I couldn't go into a shop. I've tried, but I can't. The harder I try, the worse I get. If I force myself, I feel I'm paralyzed and can't put one foot in front of the other. So please don't ask me to go into a shop. I told her that she had little, little hope of succeeding while she tried to force herself in this way. This was the fighting of which I had previously warned her. I explained that she must imagine she was floating into the shop, not fighting her way there. To make this easier, she could imagine she was actually on a cloud floating through the door. I also explained that she could further help herself by letting any obstructive thought she might have float away out of her head, recognizing that it was no more than a thought and that she, needed not, she need not be bluffed into giving it attention. When she came back, she was overjoyed and said, don't stop me, I'm still floating. Do you want me to float for something else? Strange, isn't it, how the use of one simple word could free the mind that had been in prison for months. The explanation is simple enough. When you fight, you become tense, and tension inhibits action. When you think of floating, you relax, and this helps action. The woman was in such a state of tension that I have seen her nearly reduced to tears when, with shaking hands, she tried to find a car key in her handbag. After learning to float one day, when on a similar search she said, sorry if I'm taking your time, the keys can't be too far away, I've just floated past two bills, a lipstick and a purse. I'll float around a bit longer and find them. The shaking hands were almost steady. She was learning to float past tension. And that's, I think that's, that's really, in, in, could say, one of the things that I'll have ahead of me is floating floating along with the symptoms that, that come up. And letting, letting time pass. She says um, elsewhere in the book that people have, can have a negative reaction to, the, to being told to be patient, which I certainly have told people many times. <laughs> um, but if we, if we frame it in a different way, let time pass, which is very much the same as let it go. Give it time to go on its own. 
if we resist, if we fight, we give energy to the mind's phenomena. If we accept and float and let time pass, then we're um, softening around whatever it is that's painful. Just one more little passage here from, from Claire Weeks. Loosen your attitude. She says, practice masterly inactivity and let go. If your body trembles, let it tremble. Don't feel obliged to try and stop it. Don't try to appear normal. Don't even strive for relaxation. Simply let the thought of relaxation be in your mind, in your attitude towards your body. Loosen your attitude. In other words, don't be too concerned because you are tense and cannot relax. The very act of being prepared to accept your tension relaxes your mind and relaxation of body gradually follows. You don't have to strive for relaxation. You have to wait for it. When a patient says, I've tried so hard all day to be relaxed, surely he has done a day of striving, not a day of relaxation. Let your body find its own level without controlling or directing it. Believe me, if you do this, you will not crack. You will not lose control of yourself. You will float up to the surface from the depths of despair. One thing I've noticed with this tremor that, that I have intermittently is that it's definitely exacerbated by anxiety. If, something's, if, if something anxious about something, the, the tremor will, will um, get worse. So it's, it's like a, a very clear um, mindfulness bell for me to, to look at what's going on and, and, and uh, loosen up. Some of the other things that, that I've experienced over these past few days, um, along with the, 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 the sense of dread, um, also sort of underneath that, some relief to have a diagnosis to account for all the changes that I've been experiencing, both physical and emotional. And even, even some sense of, of um, excitement, maybe that's, that's too strong a word, um, um, interest in what is going to unfold. I have my Zen practice to face this new challenge. And it's going to take me into places that I haven't gone before. It'll, I'll be forced to go there. So it can also be seen as an opportunity. It's already this, the prospect of, of being disabled has already certainly sharpened my appreciation of the simple things that you do every day to wash, to dress, to walk, to swallow food. I think of the Vajrayana 
saying, this precious human life of leisure and opportunity. It is, is this body which um, we practice with, that we awaken with. Zen is, is quite a strenuous practice, certainly in terms of its intensive periods. And, and I can't know now how long I'll be able to continue with that. So there's, there's an urgency to, to uh, practice as long as possible, to do what I can to keep the body healthy as long as possible. It's, it's a sharpening of one's uh, appreciation of impermanence. I think of the verse on the Han. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life slips quickly by. Time waits for no one. Wake up, wake up. Don't waste a moment. And along with this, this sharpening of appreciation, so much gratitude. That I have what I need to face and accept and work with this. And not quite 40 years of Sazen. 40 years this, this September. And not only my Zen practice and, and the Dharma, but a loving husband. Uh, since this, this diagnosis arisen, I've just got nothing but unconditional acceptance from him and support. Unfettered, open love. I have a home with no stairs. I have a sangha. I benefit from a from a health system which is full of caring, kind people. So in one sense, in, in, in my good moments, I can imagine myself embarking on an expedition, uh, an adventure, well-provisioned, well-prepared, and trained for the rigors to come, the rigors and challenges. <laughs> and at the same time, feeling totally unprepared and vulnerable and at a complete loss. Also preparing for this talk, I started to pull books out of my, my uh, bookcase, which might have teachings from various 
sources that could be um, helpful and supportive. Many more teachings than I had time to, to uh, explore in the time I had to prepare Taisho. But one I wanted to um, share with you all is, uh, comes from a book called Being Bodies, Buddhist Women on the Paradox of Embodiment, edited by Lenore Friedman and Susan Moon. Um, and this is quite, it's been around for a while, this book, it's first published in 1997. And some people may recognize the name Susan Moon. She um, co-edited Hidden Lamp, which has got this absolute treasure trove of stories about uh, women teachers. And actually, the, the teacher we're going to read from, her name is Darlene Cohen, and she appears in the Hidden Lamp. There are a couple of stories about her. I think she's passed away now. But I'd like to um, read some, some from a short article that, that she's written in this, for this book. And it's, it's entitled, The Only Way I Know to Alleviate Suffering. And just a little bit about her. She um, earned a graduate degree in physiological psychology in 1966 and began sitting at the San Francisco Zen Center in 1970. She was lay ordained in 1974 and um, after developing rheumatoid arthritis in 1977, she was led to explore the potential of meditation training for addressing chronic pain and catastrophic situations. In 1980, after re receiving her certificate as a massage and movement teacher from Maya Schneider, she began instructing people with chronic illness in meditation practices and self-awareness exercises. And she's, um, so I mentioned uh, several, several books she has written. Um, So this article, um, she, she first talks about having had rheumatoid arthritis for 18 years, um, which, which came on after her seventh year of, of Zen practice. Um, she talks about how she was, was searching for a way to to heal herself, um, when on the one side there were conventional doctors suggesting that she take very strong um, drugs to um, mitigate her pain, and then on the other side, um, all, all manner of treatments being suggested by her friends from, um, from being being made to eat rice bread instead of wheat um, and being wrapped in, <laughs> in comfrey-coated sheets and given extracts from every benevolent plant that grows in Northern California and China. She goes on to say that she got worse despite all of this loving care 
and her mobility became so impaired that she um, needed help for most things. And she says, as my body got weaker, my pain got greater. I had to figure out what is the most important thing to pay attention to here. Is the salvation I need inside or outside of me? And she writes, as it turned out, my Zen meditation training was a very great help. I had been taught to study the th objects of consciousness, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and thoughts. In long periods of Zazen, such as Sashin, I even had the, been able to watch my perceptions as they were being formed. This is, of course, the business of Zen meditation, to observe all these things. You simply focus your attention on what is happening now, the stream of your consciousness. There is no goal involved. The business of self-healing, on the other hand, is manipulating those objects of consciousness to increase your health. Because of my pain, I lived in a world of continual intrusive sensation. It was very much in my self-interest to notice what circumstances increased or decreased my pain and then to alter my pain level by manipulating those circumstances. Before becoming so ill, I had trouble interrupting my discursive mind to make the observations necessary to begin a mindfulness practice. On a Sunday, I would vow to notice all my postural changes, determined to say to myself whenever I went from sitting to standing to lying, now I'm standing, now I'm lying. Then the next time I remembered, Thursday, say, I would suddenly cry, oh, I'm standing. After becoming ill, I was so highly motivated to make these observations. Changing my posture was a dramatic event in my life. I needed to heed every little sensation in my legs and feet in order to go from sitting to standing. And she tells the story of living half a block away from the San Francisco Zen Center and going there, trying to go there once a week um, to sh uh, a shared meal. And she had a very short distance to go, but um, when she got to the bottom of the steps that went up to the front door of the Zen Center, um, sometimes she wouldn't be able to make, her, uh, make it all the way up the steps um, and go, to go in for the meal. And so then if she couldn't make it up the steps, she would just have to go back to her apartment, back up the hill that she had come down. I asked myself, what is it about my walking that is so tiring? What I called walking was the part of the step where my foot met the sidewalk. From the point of view of the joints, that is the most stressful component of walking. The joints get a rest when the foot is in the air, just before it strikes the pavement. I found that when I focused on the foot that was in the air, instead of the foot that was striking the pavement, my stamina increased enormously. After making this observation, I never failed to climb the steps to knock on the front door of the Zen Center. I was struck that the focus of my attention could make that much difference in my physical ability. This, it sounds like this was a kind of a kind of turning point for her. An experience of, of the 
the intimate relationship between body and mind. In fact, there's a saying in Zen, body and mind are not two. Then she, she says that she began to search out the times when her brain was clumping together many different emotions mo into an idea which would prevent me from o overcoming an obstacle. And so she would, she would um, concentrate on breaking down these clumps of ideas, as she says, into, into smaller parts that she could, she could um, cope with. Breaking them down into discrete sensations that she was experiencing, rather than an idea that she couldn't do something. And she, she would give um, arthritis workshops and she would pull out a carrot and a cutting board and a, and a sharp knife and she could feel the, the people drawing breath when this came out because it's one of the things that is a classic um, almost impossibility for people with arthritic hands. But she says, but when you actually hold the knife in your hands, feeling its wooden handle, and sharp solid blade, and you touch the vulnerable flesh of the carrot on the cutting board, your wrist goes up and down, up and down, and the orange cylinders of carrot begin to pile up on the board. And you realize, I can cut carrots. She says tears came to people's eyes. Most importantly, I learned from my study of Zen to be less attached to things. This is an important aspect of healing yourself as well, diminishing your clinging to something that was before but is no longer. It is very difficult for us to have a strong functional body, body displaced by a painful, helpless one. It shakes us to our very identity. In order to heal, people in this situation have to give up their past, to grieve for their former bodies and then turn away, to learn to see their present bodies as real and their current lives as demanding all the creativity and energy they can summon. Injured or not, we all have to face this situation as we age. Most people, the temporarily, temporarily abled, get to face it a little at a time rather than in one swift, irreparable blow. This is, this is a lovely expression that for, for most of us. The temporarily abled. If we, th if we think about it, we're, we're born um, almost completely dependent on others for our existence. And, and many of us die in the same state. We, we depend on, on a web of other lives who, who take care of us, feed us, clothe us, wash us. If you live long enough, you will know the suffering. We all have to give up our bodies someday. The sick among us get in practice. 
So it's true that you can use mindfulness practice to achieve your health goals. You may even get rid of your disease or injury. But if you practice mainly to get rid of your suffering or restore an ailing body to function rather than to express your life and your nature, it is a very narrow and vulnerable achievement. Just as a clay Buddha cannot go through the water or a Bud Buddha cannot go through fire, a goal-oriented healing practice cannot permeate deeply enough. Um, I think probably, probably since this was written, the whole concept of, of wellness has grown and become a, a big, big money-making business around the world, especially in the States. There are, there are wellness influences. Um, a huge amount of the misinformation about, about vaccination was found to be, have its source in a small number of wellness entrepreneurs, about eight, I think, eight or nine of them. But it's, it's a very shallow and, and as, as she, she says, a, a narrow and vulnerable achievement. Then she mentions the um, images from a koan as a clay Buddha cannot go through water, or a wooden Buddha cannot go through fire, a goal-oriented practice, healing practice, cannot permeate deeply enough. And she continues, we must penetrate our anguish and pain so thoroughly that illness and health lose their distinction, allowing us just to live our lives. Our relief from pain and our healing have to be given up again and again to set us free of the desire to be well. Otherwise, getting well is just another hindrance to us, just another robber of the time that we have to live, just another idea that enslaves us, like enlightenment. That is the idea of enlightenment. Fortunately for our way-seeking mind, recurring illness is like a villain stomping on our fingertips as we cling desperately to our healthy functioning bodies. The, the, the suffering comes in our attachment to being a certain way. And uh, wellness is one side of the duality of wellness and unwellness or sickness. The problem with being preoccupied with your health is that you get into this illusion of progress. Am I getting better? Am I getting worse? The reality is that illness and wellness are opposites on a continuum of preoccupation with health. And as opposites, they have the same nature, like life and death or love and hate. When we pluck wellness out of the void, illness always comes with it. There is no essential difference between sickness and wellness. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. If you are preoccupied with how well you are, you will also notice how ill you are. This leads to despair and discouragement alternating with euphoria and encouragement and condemns you to a life of disappointing setbacks alternating with happy swells of improvement. You become discouraged with your health when you still have some gaining idea or some ideal you are measuring yourself against, like how you used to feel or how someone as sick as you healed themselves. Your health habits can be more reliably 
based in daily practices which do not change with feelings about your body. You can decide how to best take care of your body and your life, and you can do it dispassionately. So she's not saying don't care, take care of ourselves. There are, there are things we can do that um, support our healing and our, and our health. But we can't be attached to results. I have a um, my sister-in-law who's presently going through um, a third round of uh, radi radio radiation treatment um, to to for um, brain tumor, and this this these treatments are exhausting. But she she remains stoic because she she just applies herself each time. Healing yourself is just like living your life. It is not a preparation for anything else, nor a journey to another situation called wellness. It is its own self. It has its own value. It is each thing as it is. Form is form. Emptiness is emptiness. You live your life to express your own sincerity, your own nature. You take care of your body because it yearns to be taken care of, and you feel generous towards it. You are aware of wanting to rest, wanting to eat, needing stimulation. When you feel impatient with your body or disappointed with its range of function, you can use that restlessness to express its yearning to move. Ironically, my body was nearly immobile before I ever appreciated it. I had had a very strong, healthy body like a slave, it obeyed my demands. It sat through hours of pain in Sishin, but I always thought, why won't it go into full lotus? I used to run with the wind along the hills above Green Gulch Farm, but I always thought, why can't I run further? Then, lying in bed, unable to stand up alone, I thought, thank God for one part, any part that still goes up and down. She, in these questions she asks herself, she, she's recognizing her, her desire, her, her bottomless desires. Why won't I get, why can't I get into full lotus? Why can't I run further? Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Even if your body is weak or painful, it's still your home. It's how you're manifesting this life. From the practice point of view, it's also your penetration into reality. Your body is the only way that you can experience the transparency of all things and their interrelationships. We haven't got time to um, read all of this, but we'll just skip through to, to, the, uh, to the end of the article. For some of us, being sick is the first time we slow down enough to notice our ordinary lives. Going to the bathroom and rising from the toilet seat. Listening intently to sounds we once considered background noise children playing outside, cars passing, 
the sudden flash of irritation when a pen rolls off the table. Of course these events happen to all of us all the time, sick or well, but usually we ignore them as mundane. When Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche wrote in Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, that the human potential for intelligence and dignity is attuned to experiencing the objects around us, the brilliance of the blue, bright sky, the freshness of green fields, and the beauty of the trees and mountains. I think he was suggesting that our intelligence and dignity themselves are developed by our being alive for the mundane chaos of our lives. It's a lovely expression, the mundane chaos of our lives. If we cultivate awareness of our actual experience without preference to any preconceived idea, then we don't prefer any particular state of mind. Intimacy with our activity and the objects around us connects us deeply to our lives. This connection to the earth, our bodies, our sense impressions, our creative energies, our feelings, other people, is the only way I know of to alleviate suffering. To me, our awareness of these things without preference is a meditation that synchronizes body and mind. This synchronization, the experience of deep integrity, of being all of a piece, is a very deep healing. It is unconventional to value such subtle experience. It's not encouraged in our culture. We're much more apt to strive to feel special, uniquely talented, particularly loved. It's extraordinary to be willing to live an ordinary life, to be fully alive for the laundry, to be present for the dishes. We overlook these everyday connections to our lives, waiting for the event. She's got the event in capitals. What is this event? It's, it's what we, f- we yearn for, what we think we lack. Could be um, insight, could be kensho freedom from from our pains. And in in our wanting something out there, we miss, we miss the everyday connections to our lives. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives to me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. And finally it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I am caught, so at the last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. 
You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else, like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and, and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. It seems to me that when we fall ill, we have an opportunity we may not have noticed when we were well, to literally incorporate the wisdom of the Buddhas and to present it as our own body. So I, I really, I've got no doubt that there will be many moments of dark despair in this, in this adventure that, that I'm embarking on. But I really, I hope that like Darlene Cohen, I can, I can have the courage to descend again and again, sometimes call this place, this dark place, in Zen, we call it the Blue Dragon's Cave. And that's, that's our, our um, task as human beings, is to descend into that Blue Dragon's Cave and come back, and come back from it, to re-emerge from it with the pearl of great price in our hands. Medicine and sickness correspond to each other. This is another from another koan by Master Umon. The whole earth is medicine. What is the self? What is this self of ours? What is medicine or what is sickness? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. Thank mm -hmm. you.
couple of things. We've got a, an all-day sitting on Sunday, and there's a sign-up sheet out by the water table if you plan to come to all part of the day. I'll be sending a reminder also in the, in the weekly update going uh, on Thursday. And the other thing is that we have Amber Fonoa here from the workshop. So be sure to say hi to her and introduce yourself during the tea. And um, yeah, welcome Amber. Any other announcements? Okay.